Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In 4 weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose 1 to 2 pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. featuring tales to terrify crime city central protecting project pulp and the all new far fetched fables everyone has a story in the district of wonders come and find yours This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 356. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'm uh, full of man flu. Where's this come from? I'll tell you what's coming today's show. First up, we have the main fiction. It is Frozen Woman by Eric Brown. Then straight after that, we have an interview with Eric that I carried out actually today. But before all that, little heads up about those two big announcements that I made last week: SofaCon and the Walk and Sofa Walks. Well, SofaCon, as you know, if we get it off the ground, it will be a Kickstarter. Now I'm going to launch the Kickstarter on the 15th of October. The show goes out on the 1st of October. Then we've got one more on the 8th, and then, like I say, the Kickstarter launches on the 15th. Going to run for 30 days. And I'm going to just tell you now who we've got lined up, and I'm still kind of adding guests, you know, night and day to be quite honest, sending emails out, badgering people. But this is who I've got lined up as of basically the 29th of September. It's going to be a two-day event, and over the Saturday and Sunday, like you say, March the 14th and 15th, we've got on the Saturday we've got Cheryl Morgan in conversation with Joe Haldeman. Then we have a panel by Lightspeed Magazine. Then we've got Kim Stanley Robinson. Diane Severson is talking to Kim Stanley Robinson. Then we have a, like a cyberpunk panel. Paul De Filippo is going to be talking to Pat Cadigan, Mark Laidlaw, and Bruce Bethke. Bruce, as you know, I've done an interview with Bruce. I think I've done an interview with Pat as well. is the guy who wrote or kind of coined the term cyberpunk as well then we're going to have and they they're a bit mixed up at the minute the, the kind of times and dates but these are who we kind of have in 
then it is the SofaCon quiz. Now, if you remember last year, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy thrashed SF Signal. Now, this, this year, they're coming back to claim the crown again. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is going to take on stupefying stories, which is Bruce Bethke and a, a friend of his are going to step up into the mark and see if they can beat John Joseph Adams and David Bar Curley in Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Then on the Sunday, we've got a Women Destroy Science Fiction panel. Then our very own Dr. Amy H. Sturgis is in conversation with David Brin. Gareth Powell will be reading from his Akak Macaque book. Then we're going to have, there's a panel where, and I'm still sorting out guests, but Dave Robinson, Dave who narrated a few stories for Starship Sova, and did, or is doing the amazing voiceover for the video for the Kickstarter, and was actually the host of Protecting Project Pulp as well, eight oodles ago. Dave is the American who's going to be interviewing three British big writers there to try and delve into what what makes UK, is it different from American writing, science fiction writing, or is it exactly the same? What quirks have us British got? So like I say, those are what's lined up to the event. It's going to start round about five o'clock. Well, I'm saying round about. It'll start five o'clock on both days and then just keep on running through. I'm going to have timetables up on the Kickstarter. You can see what's happening. And like I say, I'm still now getting guests in. You know what I mean? There'll be announcements throughout the Kickstarter. Who, you know, what guests will be there as well. So, yes, you know what I mean? I've Chuffed a bit, you know, Joe Haldeman, Kim Stanley Robinson, and David Brin. You know what I mean? You can't get better than that. And I'm still, like I say, big writers I'm still trying to get as well. So do think about SofaCon. Like I say, it's going to be a Kickstarter. God, it's got to get funded or it doesn't get kicked off the ground. You know what I mean? Hopefully, you will support it. And just a little kind of mention on the Sofa Walk. Remember last year, last week I mentioned this walk. Well, actually, people's been interested, you know what I mean? I could have some people flying in from Slovakia. <laughs> yes. We've had about probably six, six to eight inquiries, you know, about it. So there you go. On the front of the website, I've got Josh to put like a little page up and I'll be adding little photographs because I know me and Gary's going to do a recce one day and stay somewhere overnight and then do a walk, you know. So he has hope and, you know, it... <laughs> We've set it on audio, so I've got to do the thing now. And I was actually lying in bed last night, and it just ticking over, you know, because what was talking to Gary there? Three three nights, four days of walking, but it's it's eighty four mile. Do you know what I mean? So you've got to kind of basically do twenty mile a day. You know what I mean? So, dear me, what would <laughs> maybe maybe we just like. Three nights, four days, we'll just get to where we can, and then that's it. I don't know. God is <laughs> just thinking about it all last night. So two things there. Please support the Kickstarter when it kicks off. Do you know what I mean? Next week, I'll tell you the pledges, what you can kind of get for, for your money's worth. You know what I mean? But I hope you kind of come over, support it, and we'll get it kind of off the ground, and we'll, you know, build up this first kind of science fiction online convention. Yeah, there's, they're all over the place, you know, out in the wilds. But just to have one, you know, in your living room, in your kitchen, and to meet these kind of people and actually have conversations with them as well. You know what I mean? I'm kind of planning all that as well. So, fingers crossed. So, we're going to play a story by Eric Brown, Frozen Woman. And like I say, after the story, I'm going to jump straight in with an interview with Eric that I did actually carry out today. 
And this story is narrated by Leon Bissett. And unfortunately, I've lost the bio for Leon. Just kind of, Leon, I apologize so much, but thank you. You know, thank you wherever you are. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Frozen Woman by Eric Brown. I was about to start work on an article for the local free paper when the phone rang. I snatched it up. Hello? Amy Sullivan, a male voice asked. Yes. Amy Sullivan, the journalist. That's me, I said, though journalist was something of a misnomer these days. I waitress at the local Whole Food restaurant between commissions, which was most of the time. I represent Timothy Masters, he said, and left it at that. The name was familiar. I recall wondering where I'd heard it before. A minor TV celebrity? A local musician yet to make it big? But why would Master's representative contact me? Then the penny dropped. Oh my God, I said. Mr. Master's would like to meet you. Me, I said, incredulous. You and no one else but you. He's currently staying at Dudley Manor in Shropshire. If you could get here for three this afternoon. Of course, I said, more than a little bemused. He gave me directions to the place, then rang off. For years I'd been waiting for a break, an article of feature accepted by one of the nationals. Of late I'd come to accept that I'd never amount to anything more than a provincial hack. And then, out of the blue, Timothy Masters contacts me. Timothy Masters, the frozen man. Dudley Manor was a 17th century stately home set amid rolling parkland and extensive beech woods. I made the hundred-mile cross-country journey in a little under two hours, wondering all the way what Masters might want with me. Perhaps twenty cars and a BBC outside broadcast van were parked bumper-to-bumper in the long driveway. I left my beat-up VW Golf at the end of the drive and began walking. A posse of journalists and reporters kicked their heels outside the manor's imposing facade. Before I reached them, a man in a blue suit apprehended me and said, Miss Sullivan? If you'd care to come this way. I followed him around the side of the manor, but not before we'd been seen by a couple of the more eagle-eyed reporters. They gave chase. What do you know about Masters? What has the frozen man said about his experience? Blue suit hurried me through a side door and closed it firmly in the faces of our pursuers. Without a word, he led me through the manor. I took in plush carpeted corridors, walls hung with what looked like turners and constables. I thought of a question. Can you tell me what Masters is doing here? The man paused in his purposeful striding. Masters worked in the garden of the manor before his... his affliction, shall we say. Lord Dudley saw to his hospital care. He's a guest here until his recovery is complete. Altruistic Lord Dudley, I thought. Or did his lordship have an eye for the benefits that might accrue from harbouring the golden goose? The man indicated a door. After you. We passed into a vast drawing room. To the left, a pair of French windows stood open, admitting a fragrant summer breeze. Two men stood before the door, looking out. I recognised one of them from his frequent TV appearances as Lord Dudley. The other, a grey-haired man in his fifties, introduced himself as William Grant, Timothy Masters' legal representative. It was to Grant I had spoken on the phone that morning. 
Lord Dudley gave me the once over, obviously wondering why Masses had demanded to see me, a worn out, overweight thirty something who couldn't even afford a decent wardrobe. I was just as intrigued. Masses said nothing other than he wants to see you, Lord Dudley said. As soon as he, uh, came round, he mentioned only your name. I asked the question that had been bothering me for hours. And why does he want to see me? Grant gestured through the French windows. You can ask him that yourself. A long enclosed garden stretched away into the distance, old parade hedges, immaculate flower beds and gravel pathways. Perhaps fifty yards away on a bench beside an ornamental fish pond, I made out a seated figure. I took a hesitant step from the house, overcome then with a sudden apprehension. I looked back. The three men were watching me. Grant gestured me on. I left the manor and walked along the path towards the frozen man. I'd read about masters, of course, as had just about every other literate citizen in the world. Almost a year ago, while strolling down the aisle of a supermarket in Shrewsbury, Masters had stopped in the act of reaching out for a can of baked beans. Stopped. And never completed the move. Never, though it was hard to believe, started up again. At first, wary shoppers suspected some in-store promotion, a mime artist employed by Sainsbury's or Heinz. But there was something uncannily static about the man that frightened onlookers, they later reported. Eventually, Two store managers approached the man, moving around him, so the story went, as if he might be booby-trapped. Then one of them reached out and touched Master's outstretched arm, and quickly withdrew his hand. Master's was cold, freezing cold. Other, braver souls approached, reached out, were amazed. Then, a particularly brazen youth pushed Master's in the chest, and he toppled. The small crowd that had gathered by then sprang back, as if expecting the fallen man to shatter. Apparently he went down like a shop window dummy, maintaining his rigid standing posture with his arm outstretched, even when lying in the aisle. He was taken away in an ambulance and admitted to the nearest general hospital, where he was thoroughly examined. It seemed that the frozen man, as he soon came to be known, was not actually frozen at all. He was coated in a substance impervious to probes, hard, almost chitinous, and unknown to modern science. He was still alive. CAT scans showed evidence of neural activity, but the medics could do nothing to revive him. Timothy Masters had been no one special until then. A gardener who worked on Lord Dudley's Shropshire estate, single, thirty, with no relatives or family. The story soon made the national news and then was picked up by the international agencies. Timothy Masters' singular condition was something of a nine-day wonder. But as time wore on and he remained in his rigid, frozen position, media interest waned. He remained in a private hospital for the next year, monitored by specialists and dusted down by the daily staff from time to time. And then he came round. One morning, two weeks ago, a cleaner saw him move his hand, as if withdrawing it from the shelf he'd reached towards almost a year ago. The woman had screamed and fled the room. Media interest was intense again, 
with every journalist in the country and beyond wanting in on the story. And Masters, for some unknown reason, had told his representative that he wished to see me, and only me. I had never met Masters. Until he froze, I had never heard of him. I was not related to him, even distantly. My journalistic work could not have been known to him. There was absolutely no reason why Masters should want to see me. So naturally I was apprehensive, and intrigued, and bemused, as I hesitantly approached him in the ornamental garden of Dudley Manor. He turned as I crunched gravel. He smiled and gestured to the place next to him on the bench. Amy, it's good to see you. Please sit down. I sat quickly. How to describe my reaction to this perfect stranger? He was dark, rather ordinary looking, with kind eyes, and a calm, reassuring smile. He radiated peace and gentleness I associated more with Buddhist monks. He was watching me intently, and tears appeared in his eyes and slipped down his cheeks. I let out a breath and laughed. I don't understand. This is ridiculous. I've never met you before in my life. I don't know you from Adam. I think I was a little hysterical, and at the same time excited. I had always assumed love at first sight to be some retroactive illusion suffered by incurable romantics. I looked at him. What do you want? He reached out and took my hand. His own hand was warm. I felt not in the least threatened by his sudden intimacy. It seemed entirely natural. Amy, what do you believe? I let out a breath. I can't claim to have been expecting any particular question, but this one had me stumped. I, well, I don't quite know. I stared into his eyes, blue, gentle, compassionate. I shrugged and said, I'm not religious. I suppose you could call me a wishy-washy liberal humanist, I laughed. I give money to Greenpeace, but I'm not a member of any political party. He squeezed my fingers. We don't know anything, he said, with a quiet authority that silenced me. Oh, we think we do. We take in the world and make our assumptions, and listen to the experts and form views and opinions. But it's all really so much conjecture. I mean, consider the world view of a goldfish in a pond. He pointed towards the bulbous koi mooning around in the water before us. What do they know? I'm sorry, I don't understand. He smiled. I'll tell you, he said. Why me, he said. I was no one special, the head gardener at Dudley. I'd studied horticulture and land management at Pershore and worked for Lord Dudley for the past nine years. Then one day in Sainsbury's, I reached out and... What happened? I thought I'd died. I felt an intense heat all over my body. I thought I'd had a heart attack and gone to... Well, I thought I was in heaven, at first. There was no pain, just a, a wonderful sense of peacefulness. I was surrounded by a golden light, and yet I had the feeling that I'd travelled a long, long way. Then I looked around and saw them and I panicked. I experienced terror. 
a fear I'd never known before. He stopped, his gaze distant. I had to prompt him. Them? I asked. The beings, he said. They were all around me, examining me. I was naked. Beings, I echoed. Alien beings? A shiver passed down my spine. Not aliens. Humans. But humans vastly different from you or me. I was in what looked like a park. I stood in a glade, and all around me were these beings. I panicked. I lashed out, yelling. Then one of the creatures reached out and touched me, and I lost consciousness. When I came round again, I was lying on a padded surface under a silver awning, a kind of pavilion overlooking the glade. There were fewer of the creatures watching me. They told me not to fear them, except they didn't talk to me. I heard words in my head. They told me that, for a time, they had feared for my health. So severe had my reaction been to the transference. The transference? I echoed. That's what they called it. They were slight creatures, with larger heads than you or me, and tiny features. I asked who they were and they told me. He stopped. He turned his head to look at me, and something in his eyes, a kind of burning veracity, told me that he, at least, believed the truth of what he had experienced. He went on. They said that two million years had elapsed since my time, and that they were our descendants. He smiled, and I accepted that. I believed them. It seemed so obvious. They reassured me that I would come to no harm, and that they would return me in time. They wanted to study you, I asked. What did I believe? Did I truly think that evolved humans had plucked Timothy Masters from the 21st century and whisked him two million years through time in order to study him? I don't honestly know. He went on. I asked them what they wanted with me, why they had brought me there. They said they were scientists and wanted to observe me. They were curious about their ancestors. They wanted to know how I worked, how I reacted to stimuli. They told me that I would remain here for a time, but that I would not be alone. They said they would provide me with someone whom I could love. He stopped and looked at me. I think I knew then what was coming next. He said, I received the impression that their kind no longer loved, that perhaps it was no longer a biological necessity of the people of the far future. They said that they were affecting the transference of a woman, and that when I awoke, I would no longer be alone. One of their number reached out to touch me, and I lost consciousness. He squeezed my fingers, and when I came awake again, you were standing on the grass beneath the silver awning, watching me. I was prepared, as I said. I knew what had been coming. It made a kind of crazy sense, the reason he had summoned me here. But I shook my head. Impossible! The beings were no longer visible, Masters went on. Though I sensed their presence, I stepped forward and embraced you. It was as if, as if I'd been waiting all my life for this moment. It was right. We belonged. We fitted. However, at the same time, 
I knew that the beings had manipulated this, that they had somehow brought about this attraction, this feeling of love that overwhelmed me. I bridled. And what about me? I asked. Did you consider my feelings at all? He smiled and squeezed my hand again. As amazing as it seems, you felt the same. I pulled my hand away. For a brief, crazy second, it came to me that this was a setup. I had been lured here against my will for some bizarre purpose. But how could that be? Had Master staged his own freezing? I said, and I wasn't in the slightest space at being whisked two million years through time to be accosted by a stranger? I wasn't terrified? He was shaking his head. Of course not. Of course not? I repeated incredulous. How can you say that? Because, he said, you knew where you were, and I was no stranger. I was close to tears then. I don't understand, I said. They were manipulating us, Master said. I knew that. I never again saw the beings while you and I were together, but I was always aware of their presence. We lived for years in a paradise. We ate fruit and drank from streams. We had no worries, and we were never bored or concerned at what had happened to us. It was as if our past lives had been erased from our memories, as if we lived only for the day and for each other. We were in love, and it was blissful. I stared at him. Years, I said. So it seemed. We aged, we grew old. I came to understand what true love was during that time. We grew old together, decrepit, but not once did my love for you diminish. We changed so incrementally over the years that I loved the old woman just as passionately as I had loved you when you first arrived. I shook my head. The rationalist in me asked, But we were there together? And yet you were frozen here while I wasn't? He smiled and touched my hand. They transferred me first, he said. I was an experiment to see if they could accomplish the feat. Only then did they transfer you from later in our own time. But why, I asked, why not take me at the same time as they took you? Then I was taken by the corollary of my acceptance of his story. At some point in the future, I too would undergo stasis, would freeze as the beings transferred me. I tried to pull away, tell myself how preposterous all this was. Master said, you died in that future age, Amy, and I grieved. The beings showed themselves again and thanked me and sent me back to warn you of what was to come. They did not want you to suffer the same terror that I had suffered. And of course, because you had come to me without fear, they knew I had returned successfully and met you here. A paradox of causality. We sat in silence for a time. I removed my hand from hers. I stared around the garden at the fish in the pond. I was surrounded by normality, by the everyday we take for granted. I willed myself to disbelieve his story. I turned to face him. And, I said, you expect me to believe everything you've said? He smiled. I can convince you, Amy. You see, you told me all about yourself. I know your every secret. I felt so terribly vulnerable then. How dare this stranger claim such intimacy? 
on the pretext of such a bizarre story. You told me about your unhappy childhood, Amy. About the bullies. Your mother's death when you were 13. Your father's depression. You told me about what happened when you were 25. Stop! What your lover did to you. You told me that you had never loved anyone since that time. Never trusted anyone enough to love. Please stop, I begged. He stopped and held me. Now do you believe? I asked at last. Why us? Why not us, he said. It had to be someone. What now? He touched my cheek. You told me it was the day after you met me here, Amy. You returned home this afternoon, tried to finish your article. He laughed. But you couldn't, of course. Then in the morning, tomorrow at nine, after a sleepless night, you felt the heat and you were transferred. We stood and held each other for a long, long time. When I next looked at him, I saw that he was weeping. Timothy? You died up there, he said, in the future. I watched you die and I grieved. Then the being sent me back. He sighed and stared at me. I'm doing this for the me who was transferred, the person in the future. But do you realize how hard it is for the me of now, knowing that I might never again see you? I struggled for words. But they sent you back, I began. Why not me? He shook his head, avoiding my eyes. But I saw you die up there, he said. I held him for a long time, and then I fled. I returned to my flat, ignoring all the reporters encamped in the street. The phone rang continually. I turned down offers from three national papers for my story. I raged. I wept for the life I had lost, however inadequate that life had been. I wept for my uncertain future. I think I went a little mad. I thought of the wasted years and asked myself again and again how masters might have known about what had happened on the night of my 25th birthday when what should have been so good had turned so bad. Had I really told masters two million years in the future? The idea was preposterous, of course. My sanity demanded that I disbelieve him. I spent a sleepless night, just as he had said I would, and tried to come up with a rational explanation to account for the previous afternoon. In the morning, approaching nine, I considered my life to date, the fear and unhappiness. I stared at my old alarm clock on the bedside cabinet, not knowing what I wanted. Nine o'clock came and went, and I was torn with relief, and at the same time, a savage disappointment. I stood and moved towards the bathroom, and froze. Froze! Unable to move! And then, I felt the heat. I stood beneath the silver awning, and he reached out for me, and we came together. We lived a life as he had described it. Our thoughts and sensations manipulated, no doubt, by the observing far-future humans, like insects under glass, like koi carp in a pond, but no less happy for that fact. I came to know Timothy, as I had known no other as we aged together in paradise. 
I told him about our meeting in the grounds of Dudley Hall, of which, of course, he had no memory. I told him that I had fallen in love with him then, against my better judgment. Was ours the strangest union of two humans ever? And much later I died. I recall his tortured expression as sleep claimed me, and I slipped away. And came awake in my own age, approximately a year after my departure. I was in a room in Dudley Manor, a sunlit room overlooking the ornamental gardens. I was quite alone, and felt a moment's panic at the fact of Timothy's absence. For so long we had been together. I slipped out of bed and hurried to the window and stared out. And there he was, standing in the garden below. He was staring at the fish in the pond. He turned, as if sensing my surveillance, then smiled and lifted an arm and moved towards the house. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Eric's. Eric, thank you so much. And like I say, now I've got this little interview lined up with Eric. So Eric, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. You're welcome, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, and, lo- and lovely to, to get that story and to play that story. And it's funny, I've had that story for ages, do you know what I mean? And just thought, oh, right, now I'll, I'll get a chance to play it. So, Eric, I mean, just go, just before, you know, just going back, because I'm sure that story came out oodles ago for you. Where, can you remember anything of the premise of how you got that story together? Not a thing. <laughs> Sorry, I, can't, I, I can't even recall giving you permission to... Uh, to um, reproduce it, but <laughs> I, I, I must have done. Um, I can't re- recall a thing about it at all. Um, I do I, I do recall that it was one that I had an idea for one day. I sat down and wrote it the next, and it wrote itself in, in half a day. Um, I'm, I'm having difficulty actually remembering what it was about. As I recall, it's about a journalist who gets summoned to a country house to meet a man who um, was frozen a few years ago. And it's a time travel story. I think mean, that's about all I can recall. Yeah, Eric, that's fantastic. Is that, you know, as well what you just said there, you wrote it in, like, say, half a day. Is that things that happen most of the time for you with your writing? Say, short stories, um, can you just bang them out like that? Most of the time. Um, now and again, stories are more difficult and... The first draft is always pretty quick. Um, um, sometimes I get ideas ten years beforehand and I think of them on and off. Um, sometimes I get the idea a day before, but when it comes to actual writing, um, I, do, I sit down and do 2,000 words a shift, so um, I can be finished in, in four hours, uh, four or 5,000 word tale. Um, now and again, things are a bit slower, but more, more often than not, um, it, it comes up pretty fast. When Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The story is finished. Then comes the hard work of rewriting and cutting and then sitting on it and allowing a bit of time to elapse. Um, but more often than not, the first draft is, is pretty quick. And the subconscious kicks in. It's all about allowing, uh, allaying your fears and allowing the subconscious to kick in, write, write the story for you. The intellectual thing, or the, if, if that isn't too, um, too grand a phrase, the, the thinking about it comes afterwards and when, when the cutting and the rewriting goes on. You know, when you, you write your first draft of a story, are you tempted, you know, do you get excited? Are you tempted to kind of send it off straight away? Or over the years, um, I, do you know, listen, I've got to wait here. I'm always very excited, um, and I restrained the impulse to send it off. I've recently finished one. Um, I said earlier that sometimes ideas gestate over 10 years. Um, quite a while ago, I, I read Oscar Wilde's um, um, epithet, um, no man is rich enough to buy back his past. And it must have been 15, 20 years ago or more that I read this and thought one day a story will come to me. A couple of months ago, I was sitting writing um, a piece for my blog and uh, out of nowhere, fully blown, came the idea for a man who who can buy back his past. And the idea was full blown. And I knew it was going to be 10,000 or more worder. And I sat down then and wrote it in, in two or three days. Um, and I thought it was a cracking piece of work, and and I wanted to send it out straight away. Um, I put it aside a bit, I let a few people see it, and come to realise that it needs a lot of work. <laughs> I wrote it in the wrong in the wrong. Um, I wrote it from first person point of view, and it, it will only work if I write it from the third person. So it needs more work. But um, the actual writing of it initially was done in two or three days. Um, I still like it, and it will need a lot more work but it will make it a better term, a better story. Are you good at taking, you know, like you say, you handed out to a few close friends, are you good at taking criticism, Eric? You know, because you've been in the game a while, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so you, yeah. you know your actual, your art and your craft. But you've got to be. Um, only a fool would not take criticism. And over the years, you get to know who gives pertinent criticism and who gives valid criticism. Um, I send my stuff out to quite a few people, maybe novels to two or three people, short stories to the same. Um, and um, no, nobody is infallible. Everybody makes mistakes. And I'm no, I'm no exception. Um, so Keith Brook looks at my stuff. Patrick Mann looks at my stuff. Um, a writer in Cambridge called Philip Vine goes through it. And they all add something a bit different. Um, and I take their word um, implicitly. Uh, I, I don't get it right first time. And uh, my advice to anybody writing would be, Put aside your fear and just let people read and uh, take criticism. It's, it's invaluable. And then, of course, editors have their say, and uh, what editors come up with is, is often very valid too.
I mean, this this obviously is your day job. Am I right in thinking that? Writing's been your day job for quite a while yeah. as well. Yeah, as well as looking after a dog and a, a, a daughter. <laughs> it, it is my main form of, um, of, uh, of um, employment, yeah. Well, you know, I was looking, I've been on like, the internet science fiction day there, Eric, and there's just oodles of work for you. Do you know what I mean? And they're all kind of, it's banging, it's, it's happening now. Do you know what I mean? How do you, from the business side of things, how do you keep yourself organised, making sure, you know, that story's out at that publisher, you know, are getting considered, this one's coming in, checks are coming in here. That right. itself must be, you know, when you're full-time writing, must be a kind of a nightmare of a scenario. Well, I'm, I'm pretty anal when it comes to keeping lists, so it's not difficult <laughs> to keep track of the short stories. And I have an agent who looks after the novels, um, and I'm obsessive with um, printing out royalty statements and keeping check on those too. Um, it's a sign of a business I don't care for. I prefer actually writing. Um, I'm glad we've got an agent to handle the most uh, most of the business side of it. Do you, what it's um, the best way I'm trying to do? How can I pigeonhole Eric Brown? Do you know what I mean? Like you see, there's so much work there. Are, are you through and through? Would you class yourself a science fiction writer or? I, um, I think it would be it would be better if people could pigeonhole me, then they might buy more of my stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> I see myself as a, a, a core science fiction writer of the Bob Shaw variety that is not a hard SF writer, not an intellectual cutting-edge SF writer, but a writer who tells a story in the Bob Shaw tradition. Um, I'm not saying that I'm as good as him, nor am I saying that uh, my idea is as good as his. But he's a type of honest, core genre writer that I aspire to being. Michael Coney is another one. Um, and that's what I love. I love reading it. I love writing it. I also enjoy writing for children and uh, latterly writing crime novels. They're a lovely antidote. Crime novels are a lovely antidote to um, writing about the far future. Uh, the last two I've written, the novels Murder by the Book and Murder at the Chase, were published um, I think last year and the year before and set in 1955. So it's wonderful to go back to write about a world that the reader knows without my having to build that world from scratch the setting is implicit in the story and I don't have to tell you that much about it they already know about it you, you just, I didn't realise about crime mind you so is, is crime a, a new genre or is this again since you've been writing you've kind of well, dabbled in different genres well actually I, I, Agatha Christie is responsible for me being a writer I didn't read a book until I was 15 and then while we were living in Australia, my mother thrust uh, a copy of uh, Cards at the Table by Agatha Christie at me and said, uh, get out from under my feet, stop being bored and read this. And it changed my life. I, I read it. It was the first novel I'd ever read. I read it and then reread it and then went out and bought everything by Christie and for the next few months um, was captivated by, by the, the, the power of a word and this, this form of being able to get into the mind of another another person. Um, and then I discovered Robert Silverberg, and if Agatha Christie was a revelation, can you imagine what Silverberg and H.G. Wells were? Um, but I've always liked crime, and um, I've always had ideas for crime, and I've written two or three unsuccessful crime novels um, over the, the past 35 years, and three or four years ago I had an idea for a crime novel set in 55, one of the series, and uh, wrote that and, and sold it to Seven House. They bought a second one out earlier this year, and um, I hope to do more, but it depends on sales, of course. Does does crime give you as much satisfaction, then, as science fiction? In a different way. Um, what crime does give me, 
um, is the ability, the ability to use different technique. What you can't use in futuristic science fiction is simile or metaphor, um, because the very fact of likening something to something else, another object, um, by the very definition of creating simile, you're likening, like, likening something to an object that the reader must know and must be familiar with. And as a reader is contemporary, you're immediately undercutting the, that sense of futurity you're trying to create. Um, also, in science fiction, to a great extent, you can't write about um, eccentric characters because for a character to be eccentric or mildly eccentric, he must be eccentric in relation to the society you're writing about. And it's my contention that science fiction societies are eccentric in their own right. It's hard for a writer to write about eccentric characters. I only found this out when I was writing um, Murder by the Book, set in 55, when two or three characters jumped off a page and were defined by their eccentricity. And I couldn't work out why this was. And uh, I think it's because pe people reading about 1955 pretty know much pretty much know the background and can see an eccentric character in relation to the society that is, is, is in. Uh, so I, in many ways, I find it liberating in, in terms of technique. Um, in, other, in other ways, because it's a, 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 a very narrow-focused puzzle story, I find it uh, very limiting. Um, science fiction is a vast, broad canvas. It can work, work in many sub-genres with, within the umbrella of science fiction. Did it give you just as much thrill, though, Eric, you know, getting a book published in crime, thinking, oh, get, that's, you know, I've cracked that? It does. Um, it, it, the actual writing, if it gives me a thrill, because whether you're writing for children, for science fiction readers, for, for crime readers, the actual putting words on the page and creating story is very much the same. It's, it's about drama. It's about communicating your passion for story. Um, and it, it would be nice to be um, to sell in, in crime and to do a long-running series, which I intend, so I can do a science fiction novel and alternate with a crime novel. The children's books um, seem to have died off. I wrote uh, a dozen for um, Bank and Stoker, a reluctant reader publisher, uh, but they seem to have uh, died off at the moment, so I've, I haven't done a children's book for two years. It'd be nice to write in that uh, subgenre too, but uh, maybe not. You know, you, you touched on a little bit about your childhood. I don't know, do, do you mind talking about your childhood? Not was, not it a, was it a, a happy childhood? Tell us about your childhood then. Um, it was very happy. Um, I left school at 14. I couldn't have been happier. Um, we emigrated to Australia when I was 14. And as, a, I, was a, as I was an academic, and you could leave school there at 14 and a half, 15, I took the chance. I had a job to go to and uh, went to it. Um, I started in the year stream when I was 11. Back then, unlike now, Children were graded in terms of academic ability in the comprehensive school in uh, Wakefield, where I went to. And I started in the S-Stream, but when I did the Swansea City, I was relegated year after year until I ended up in the D-Stream. And I would have been in the E-Stream had it not been for Australia saving me. Um, so we emigrated to Australia. My mum gave me Agatha Christie, and uh, I decided I wanted to be, to be a writer. Um, I worked in a corner shop for four years in Australia and we came back and I worked in a factory and then at various odd jumps to subsidise the writing which I did at weekends and uh, and um, evenings. I, I never got out, I was a sad individual. Hey, mate, so you, you've kind of been writing science fiction then since, you know, that very early age? From 16, 
Australia was that a you know just a um, both sides of family on my mum's side and my dad's side lived there and were constantly writing saying what a lovely life it is here and uh, it's good for the children to come out so we came out my mum and dad were in the 40s and uh, I think we were homesick I, I can understand that and we, we lasted four years and came back to Yorkshire so tell us then, Eric, if you don't mind, you know, like, say, you're writing these short stories. When when do you start thinking, you know, these are selling and it's actually there's this checks coming in? When would, when did all that kick in? Um, well, I, I started writing about 1976, 77, um, and I must have written a couple of hundred short stories and 20 short novels. I was laboring under the misapprehension that novels had to be about 40,000, 50,000 words long because I discovered ace doubles in Australia, and I thought all novels were this long. Um, so I, I wrote 20 odd very short, very bad novels, um, and then concentrated mainly on short stories because that, that was a form I loved. Um, came back to England, um, um, worked in a factory, wrote all the time, and then um, I asked my mum and dad if I could take a year off out of factory work to write a few novels and see if I sold. I, I took a year off, I think that was 79. Um, no, 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 it wasn't. It was uh, 83. 83 I took a year off. Wrote five novels. None of them sold. All of them were terrible. Um, and then uh, said, right, I've saved enough from um, saved enough from working in the factory. I'll travel around India for a year. I went to India, and I think something happened then. And when I came back, I started selling short stories. A, a year or two after that, I started writing short stories. I eventually sold. Um, that was 87. Um, I started selling stories to Interzone, um, and on the strength of the first two or three, I got an agent who um, asked if I had a novel. I had loads of novels, but they were all really bad. Um, but I said, I've got enough short stories for a collection, little realising that they'd take them, or little hoping that they'd take them. I thought it was a, a shot in the dark. But um, um, Martin Fletcher at then Sphere Books took them, I liked them. Uh, he moved before the book was published to um, to Macmillan, and he took the book with him. So the, the Time Watchman and other stories came out from Macmillan. It was part of a two-book contract I did then, and before it was a novel which I, I wrote. Um, Keith Book, um, my good friend and writer Keith Book, uh, Josh is with me, that uh, it's really a short story in disguise. It's only 63,000 words. Um, I'll, I'll still... Um, still living under misapprehension that novels had to be short. <laughs> I've written fatter ones since then. It's funny, I'm going to actually try and get an interview with Keith as well. So tell us your little bit of history with Keith, because Keith seems to be like a whirlwind as well. You know, he kind of, with the internet, and when we first kicked yeah. off Starship Sova, he had one of the main sites there, you know, we, we, we used to yeah, go oh. to for research and everything. And then, yeah. but now Keith seems to be, again, to be kind of flourishing and writing and... Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, I met Keith at... Um, to signing for, I think, I think it was Other Edens. We both had short stories in Other Edens, or it might have been David Garnett's um, anthology, 
I can't recall the name of it. Anyway, it was at a cafe in London, and we hit it off immediately. And um, and I think very shortly we were collaborating on short story, discussing ideas. Um, I think our first couple of collaborations were um, stories that I couldn't quite get right or didn't think worked, and he rewrote them. The later collaborations were uh, proper collaborations in that we discussed ideas back and forth, and then he wrote a bit and I wrote the next bit and, and, until the story was finished. And we that was that was early nineties and what twenty nearly twenty five years later we're still collaborating. We've recently finished a fantastic well I think it's fantastic novella, which is with um, Tor novellas at the moment. Um, and we've done a couple of short stories I think this year which have found publishers. So it's very rewarding. It's a fantastic. Um, um, it's it's great to be able to write stories that I never would have written on my own. Um, Keith brings an intellectual vigour and uh, knowledge of science to stories, which I don't have at all. Um, he's an accomplished novelist in, novelist in his own right. His last two are fantastic. And uh, he, he, he ran the, uh, as you know, the Infinity Plus website, which is still an archive of fantastic Oh, things. it's just, you know what I mean? That was, like you say, the one website. I mean, Starship Silver kicked off in, I think, 2006. And it was just the place to go for research, for everything. Do you mm. know what I mean? And then, like you say, it kind of, Keith, I don't know if he just kind of shelved the whole lot. But I see now... You know, he's went down the kind of as well the publishing route, and I was just wondering, is that ever con- you know crossed your mind and maybe you know delve into that side of things as well? The, the, sorry, what kind of publishing? Just like publishing books, you know what I mean? Um, not, not myself. Um, Keith had brought a couple of books, oh, three or four books of mine out through Infinity Plus, um, but I, I'm not technically minded. I, I, I wouldn't have a clue on how to bring a book out. <laughs> um, I'll leave that to other people. But, Keith is protean. He, he's, a, he's a writer, a reviewer. Um, he, he, he writes novels in different genres under different names. Um, and he, he's also a publisher and excellent editor, too. So, you know, uh, you, you made us laugh there, Eric, because when I, I spoke to Keith to get you to kind of get back in touch and get your email address, and he says, Mind, I don't think he's got a, you know, like a smartphone. I think, or you might have said you haven't got a smartphone. You know, no. you write all this technology, this future gorgeous technology. And yet you still, do you struggle a little bit with technology yourself? <laughs> I'm anti-delusion. <laughs> or is it anti-podium? No, um, I, I've got no interest in, in mobile phones and technology as such. Uh, I'm interested in how it affects people. Um, but I really, I'm, I'm, I've got other things to do. I like reading and uh, I don't like reading Kindle. I, I did a blog piece uh, a few weeks ago about the uh, merits of Kindle as opposed to books and books come top every time. Um, no, it was not technological. I don't even drive a car. Um, I couldn't fix a plug, so uh, um, I don't. I'm not. I'm not bragging. It's just. It, it's just me. It's just who I am. It's interesting, mind you, because like I say, I'm now you know like a hundred percent Kindle. Do you know what I mean? It's just. Well, actually, saying that, I've just ordered a book, and it's about we're going to do in I think next year, but we're going to walk the Roman Wall. Right. A few of the, and possibly a few of the listeners as well, and it's actually the only chance you can get is on paperback. So this is the first time I'm getting the paperback. And I think with me, mind you, it's because I've got to, you know, admit now I need reading glasses. And it's, you know, you can't, you can't adjust the font. That's one of my biggest things with a paperback, you know. So you, I've got to put my reading glasses on. I know what you mean, Tony, but I'm a sad individual. I, I like the physical object. I like smelling a book. I like touching the paper. I, I like the history of a solid object in my hand. And I collect books. 
of books that are kind of history for me were uh, uh, were a word on 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 um on a screen that means very little to me other than obviously the story the intellectual content um so i, I remain unconvinced <laughs> you know it's funny when when kindles first came out in the in the in the ebook and everything everyone was seeing the death of paperback do you think there is still a valid argument there, or do you always think there's going to be the two, you know, going um, into the future? I, I tend to think that both will rub alongside each other. Um, it might not be the death of paperback; it could be the death of the hard, the expensive hardback. But I think there'll always be a niche market for the hardback, and people will always want to read proper books and collect proper books. Um, that said, as as the current generation grows up and is more savvy with technology and comfortable with reading on screen, um, perhaps e-books will take over. Um, it'll be a sad day when no books are printed by. I can't see that. It'll, it'll become a niche market and, um, and look at the print-on-demand um, trade. It's pretty healthy at the moment. So oh, yes. Eventually, mm-hmm. eventually, but not within my lifetime, anyway. Eric, tell us about, then, if you don't mind, your work in routine, your daily work in routine. Are you one of these writers that writes through the night? Oh. No, no, I've got a very um, nine-to-five routine. I get up at about seven, um, get breakfast ready for everybody. Um, then I walk the dog after breakfast, come back about nine o'clock, sit down, power up the computer, um, and about 9.30, start writing for a couple of hours um, and uh, produce 2,000 words. I take the dog out for another walk, grab a sandwich, feed the hound, and get back to it about uh, 12.30, one o'clock, and then do another two, two and a half hours. And I go fetch my daughter from school, walk the dog, and that's it for a writing day. Um, when I'm working, I can get four to 5,000 words done a day. And I hope to start the next journey novel tomorrow. Um, ob- obviously, there's weeks and months in between when I, I, I'm just not working on a novel. And I, I, I obviously work less. I rewrite less. And um, I work on short stories. Um, I don't do much other than uh, write, though, I must admit. I'm, I'm not a big one for hobbies. I used to garden, but I've got arthritis now, so I no longer do much in the garden. Mate, it's funny, it's, um, I'm 48 there now, and you can, I can just feel the slight you know, niggles in my fingers and my arms, and you're thinking, hey, it's coming. It's right, right. It's, I, I started getting arthritis when I was 40, and I was still playing soccer, but uh, I had to give that up, which was sad. You, you know when you like you say you're a total ideas man and the amount of short stories you've got there and novels do you ever well I can't imagine you're hitting a brick wall for ideas do you ever have blank days where you just cannot think of anything and you cannot write anything no no I don't believe in um, in writer's block it's a myth um, even if you write start writing rubbish the subconscious will kick in and you'll start writing stuff that isn't rubbish um, and then you go back and, and, and rewrite. Fiction is modular. You can lift sections out and rewrite them and pop, pop them back in. Um, I, I, when we got the dog last year, he was I, I'd never owned a dog before in my life. Uh, I was a cat person, and we got a dog, and it was such a, um, an imposition on my life. I felt <laughs> I'd been... Um, I felt I'd been imprisoned with this, this character. So as a, in a bid to prove myself wrong... Over that September, I wrote a novella, um, a long short story, and about 20 short, short stories of a thousand words. And I sat down every morning without an idea. And lo and behold, an hour later, two hours later, I had a, a thousand word short story. Um, you've got to discipline yourself and you've got to believe that the subconscious will kick in and it will. Um, not all the short stories were very good. And um, I've 
since cannibalised them for other things, but a few of them have sold. So, have you have you forgiven forgiven the dog? I love him. I love him now. He's become a part of my life, and I wouldn't be without him. He gets me out of the house and exercising. So, uh, although I cursed him to begin with, I wrote a short story that appeared in um, Strange Visitors, the book out for me, in where it says uh, New Compress. Um, it was called Pooch, and it was about in the future how people aren't imprisoned. They're, they're given them a, a, a cybernetic dog to imprison them. But that was written after about a month of having it behind. Um, I think if I wrote a story now, it would be more uh, loving towards dogs. So d- d- when you're off on your walks, do you, d- you do much of your thinking there as well? Or can you, do you just concentrate on having a good time with the dog? Um, a bit of both. Um, we, I live in East Lothian uh, in a tiny hamlet called Tinningham, and we're next to a big house called Tinningham House, and the grounds are beautiful, and there's deer and hare and foxes in the grounds. So um, when I go out for a walk, I hope to see wildlife. But, yeah, walking is good for, for mulling over ideas, as is the shower. So between the shower and, the, and walking, I, I get a lot of ideas and a lot of thinking done. What's you know? It's just because I'm a dog person as well. We've got two Dobermans and a working cocker spaniel, and it's (laughs) sometimes you hear us on the kind of. I've got cliffs where I can walk up and down. Sometimes you hear you know you can hear me coming a mile away, shouting, cursing at the dogs because they chase everything. Do you know what I mean? The two Dobermans are so naughty. Do you mean so lovable but so naughty? Do you know what I mean? And what does your dog run after things? Well, he's a red and white setter, and they're a bit loopy. They they don't. (laughs) calm down until they're five years old and he's only 15 months old so he's still got him on, a, on an extendable lead or he'd run off and, and probably wouldn't come back um, so I, I keep him on an extendable lead Well it's just, mine would just pull us off my feet there so it's, <laughs> and it, I wouldn't care you know, it's they're great, I mean they never bother with other dogs but it's just sometimes there's the odd person you know, on a horse, yeah. well they just circle the and horse and it's oh, it's just a nightmare so, yeah, I'm interested to find out Eric, what? Because I once, and I'm not kind of name-dropping, but I once asked Gene Wolfe what science fiction meant to him, and he just came back with a great one-word answer saying hope. And I was just wondering, what, what does science fiction mean to you? Well, um, it mean, I can't answer it in one word, but um, I suppose science fiction means that, it means change to me. Um, it, it, It's a way of apprehending the future and realising that the present is only like this for a certain amount of time and by the nature of things, things will change. Uh, when you read science fiction, you're looking at the... You're looking at history of a broad, massive span. You're looking at humanity and um, how we might change and I, and I think it leads to a liberal outlook, perhaps. Um, yeah, I think science fiction is about changing, about one's acknowledgement and apprehension of, of change. That's about as profound as I can get. <laughs> is, it, is there anything in your, your, your writing which you kind of just stay clear of? You know, I'm thinking maybe religion, you know, and fanatical religions um, like that, or anything, is there? I, I, I find that I write quite a lot about religion. Being an atheist, um, it does come up from time to time. Um, what I wouldn't write about... Um, uh, there's probably lots of things I can't write about because of lack of ability or insight. Um, but off the top of my head, I can't think about anything I wouldn't write about. I, I'm, I couldn't write vampire romances and, and urban <laughs> fantasy. I, I find fantasy 
it's very valid and there's some great writers out there, but I, I just can't take it and uh, um, and I certainly couldn't write it. But that's through, uh, it's not through any taboos, it's just through preference. What, there you go. what can we kind of expect to see from you then, coming soon? Um, next year there will be um, um, Journey 2, which I've yet to start. I'll start that tomorrow or the day after. Um, that's a follow-up to Journey and the Greater Game. This one will be called um, Journey and the Great Pursuit. It follows on her story. She's a Anglo-Indian girl of 18, um, and um, she's... Um, it's a novel of conceptual breakthrough. Each each novel will be about how what she perceives of the of reality is overturned, and she then believes it to be something else. And it's a novel set in 1925, initially in India under Viraj. The second novel will be set partly in Greece, India, um, Greece, Britain, and Tibet. Um, there might be a third book. It depends on how the first one sounds. Um, there might be a crime novel if. Seven House wants a third one. Again, it depends on what is sold. And um, I think there's going to be a short story collection from Infinity Plus. And I've got quite a few outlines of books out there waiting for publishers to say yes or no. So um, um, definitely a couple of books next year. Oh, and the ongoing um, Telemas series from PS Publishing. I've got there's two out this year and there'll be two out next year. Beyond that, 2016, I, I don't know. But um, hopefully a few contracts will come in. Are you pretty good, Eric? It's, you know, if a publisher comes to you or an editor and says, you know, write about this, can you think, you go away for a week and think, right, that's an idea? Yeah, I, 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 I like that idea. I like publishers asking me for work. <laughs> um, it's, that happened with, um, with the Weird Space idea from uh, Jonathan Oliver, Rebellion Solaris books. He wanted to um, write a kind of shared world um, he wanted me to write the first two books in the shared world setting, and then it would be taken up by other writers. So I had to come up with a, a, an overall um, future universe, which I did, um, and wrote the first two novels, and the second one will be by um, Una Cormac, and I've had a hand in it. And then Una will write the fourth book, and then it will go on to other writers to expand on that. But I loved write, coming up with this idea. He put certain limits down. He, he told me what things he did want and the rest was up to me and that was quite was that quite liberating for you it was he, he, he did say he wanted um a lovecraftian element to it um a space opera uh various cults and schisms and uh, um and he, he left me to it and i came up with something that we were both happy with and it's uh it's only a real big future history type of thing i've done over on the engine man future history Eric, would you ever go down, you know what I mean, like say you can certainly write a few novels there, so is there any chance you might consider going down the self-publishing way as well, you know, like just say raising money on a Kickstarter programme, and you know, yes, keeping your normal books going with the, the publishers, but also an, another sideline where you can actually control the different things? Probably not, no, anything like that I, I put through <laughs> Infinity Plus. Um, um, it, it isn't self-published, but it, it, it's published through a friend, so... No, I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't have the expertise or the knowledge of how to set it up to begin with or sell it. Um, but Keith, Keith has that knowledge.
Cambridge and uh, Infinity Plus. It's a good list and um, there's some good things on it. Oh, there's, there's, uh, there certainly is. Like I say, I'm going to try and get in touch with Keith and hopefully get an interview when because I think he's all up in the arms. I don't know if he's moving or there's something big going on. And he says, Tony, this right. week's a little bit kind of hairy, scary. So he's always busy. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll get an interview from him, and you won't feel as much as I have. <laughs> <laughs> do you have Eric? Just before we go, on, just a couple of questions. Do you have much control over the book once you've kind of handed that story? I'm just talking about artwork and you know distribution rights and everything like that. Um. So Lawrence are great in that they consult me about the, uh, the the artist I want to uh, have, have do the cover. And for the past f- few covers, it's been um, Dominic Harmon. He's a good friend of mine. He's a fine artist. And when we've agreed that Dominic can do the cover, I send a few ideas to Dominic, and we bat a few ideas back and forth, and he does a few rough versions. And I've been delighted with the ones he's done um, for my colours. He's done a serene invasion, and then Johnny and the greater game with the mechanical element, uh, elephant on it. it was fantastic. Uh, distribution, distribution and sales, I leave that to the professionals. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about that side of things. So the last question then, Eric. Are you going to get a smartphone? No. <laughs> <laughs> no I'm sorry, Tony. I'm... Uh, I'm stuck in medieval times. <laughs> Eric, it's been absolutely a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you I've so en- much. I've enjoyed it. You've dispelled my fears. So. <laughs> Listen, take good care and just keep on writing those fantastic stories. Lovely. Many thanks for that. I will do. Nice talking, Tony. Well, lovely guy. Eric, it was lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much. I'll put links on to Eric's site. Please pop over there. Like I say, it's just so many works. You know what I mean? Just... The guy's just a marvel at kind of creating ideas. I do hope you'll go out and check out his books. So that is show 356, Put to Bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, I hope you do support SofaCon when it kind of kicks off the ground. It won't be long. Like I say, next week, just talking about the, the pledges, and then the week after that, that's it. And I might have some news on different guests as well, so fingers crossed. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.